says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Father, we humbly pause and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would just prepare each and every one of us this morning to be able to hear the voice of you as the living God just speaking to our lives what it is that you would have us to hear from this portion of the Word of God. Lord, we pray that every intent behind why you inspired and gave this portion of the Word of God for us by your Spirit would be exactly what we hear in our individual lives this morning, Lord. Help us, we ask, to have a heart that's ready to receive. Help us to be attentive and able to hear what you're trying to say to us. Bless your word, and we pray that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and power speaking to our hearts. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it really helps when you have the complete story in situations. When you have all the facts, it seems to make it much more helpful at times to be able maybe to proceed in a situation or to be able to handle something properly. And that same thing is very much true spiritually in regards to the fact that the more that we know all of the biblical facts the more that we know the full story of what the Word of God really uh, tells us regarding everything we've received in Jesus, it makes it much more helpful to live for Jesus. Uh, When we have all the facts, when we have the complete story, it helps us to live out the Christian life and serve the Lord faithfully. And in today's passage, we learn some really glorious and honestly critical truths regarding what we have in Christ, things that we've received in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say in advance, some of the language here is a little bit metaphorical, and uh, so therefore it may almost seem a little bit in its cursory reading like, wow, what is that kind of referring to? And we hope to kind of help clarify some of that to show you how really there's some metaphors and analogies that are being used here to kind of drive home the point of what Paul was trying to say. Now, as we go into our text this morning, the background, if you were with us in our last study, you remember Paul had just left off in the prior verse verse 10 by making a declaration a glorious statement regarding our spiritual condition or the position that we now have in Christ as a result of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ as a result of being now sort of if you would kind of married with Jesus in a relationship with Jesus Paul said to us there in verse 10 you are complete in him you are complete in him and the idea there is the result of being one with jesus through that spiritual union or marriage we have been completed spiritually Uh, important to recognize jesus completes our spiritual 
life. Jesus completes our spiritual need. Uh, that is true for us as a believer in Christ, as a Christian and follower of the Lord, to know that we are now complete in him. And this morning, if you've not made that commitment yet to Jesus Christ, you need to realize that no amount of religion or effort or things that you can do spiritually will complete what is necessary for your soul and spirit until you truly embrace Jesus. Because you're not complete until you're in Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus. This is what the Bible teaches. But in our relationship with him, everything that we need for spiritual life has been given to us. Which means this morning, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you've been born again of the Spirit of God, it's vital that you know that you are not lacking something still. There's not some key that you still need to discover to live the fruitful, victorious Christian life. The Bible says you are complete. In him, you've been completely equipped. The Bible says that we have div the, the divine nature, the, the nature of God, the nature of Christ by the spirit dwells within us. And everything that we need for life and godliness has already been given to us when the life of Christ was given to us because he himself is complete. And so Jesus completes us and by the presence of Jesus within us, he's able to help us with anything we need for the spiritual life. Now it seems Paul wants to further describe as he goes on now in verse 11, exactly how we are complete in him. Having this idea on his mind of us being complete in our spiritual position and relationship with Jesus, he's going to discuss things here in verses 11 through 15, like how we're completely set free from the, the power of, of sin to rule over us. Uh, sin does not have to rule over us anymore. It doesn't have to have dominion over our lives. In Jesus, he's going to tell us that we are completely united together with him, which means we are completely ready for heaven already. He's going to tell us in these verses that we're completely forgiven of all of our sin and that we as well have been completely delivered from Satan's power to control us. So let's look at this together beginning in verse 11. The first thing Paul discusses regarding how we are complete in Christ, he's going to tell us in verse 11 here that we've been completely set free from sin's power to rule over us or control our life. He says in verse 11, in him, that's in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice again, as I said, he begins by saying in him. In him, the text begins. Again, reminding us of this fact that this is something we've experienced spiritually as the result of our lives now being one with Christ or our life being in Christ. Now that we have a life in Christ spiritually entering into a relationship, this is a spiritual benefit of our new spiritual position. That is, once you and I put our faith in Jesus, believing in his sinless life and his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension back into heaven, once we receive that for ourselves... And we believe upon it for ourselves and we believe he did that for me and I believe it wholeheartedly and I receive it for me personally. When that takes place and our spiritual conversion happens, Paul describes what happened using here again, as I said, in verse 11, 
what would have been for them a very familiar picture. He's using metaphorical language here. When you experience the moment of your salvation or conversion, he says in verse 11, you were also circumcised. But notice he clarifies a circumcision performed, he says in verse 11 there, without hands. So it's not a physical circumcision he's talking about, but he says it was a circumcision that was accomplished by a circumcision of Christ. That is something that Christ did for us. Now, again, Genesis 17, we know the Bible teaches that circumcision was one of the, uh, if you would, religious rites that God gave to the Jewish people to observe. On the eighth day, the Jews were to circumcise their male children as a part of the covenant relationship that they had with God. And it was a representation of the commitment that they had to God as a people. And that physical act of circumcision was a symbolic procedure performed on the body. But it was symbolic of what was to be more a reminder for them constantly that they had an inward relationship with God. And, and that purpose of the whole process in the circumcision, there's the cutting away of the flesh. There's the removal of the flesh to expose what is underneath of it and an undergoing or uh, undergoing experience. It's trying to convey God was to his people that this is what was to be true of their hearts inwardly, that they were not to be a people who lived after the flesh or the desires of the flesh, but they were to be a people who were to live after what was deeper and inward and underneath that is the the spirit of god leading them inwardly in their life and they were to live after the deeper things of the spirit that they were not to be led of the flesh but directed by god so this physical rite and procedure of circumcision was to speak of a deeper circumcision that people needed inside of their lives in their hearts if you would in fact listen to deuteronomy 10 as God describes that in Deuteronomy 10, it says, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. The Lord delighted in your fathers to love them and chose their descendants after them. Therefore, listen, Deuteronomy 10:16. therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. Again, at the end of the chapter, or excuse me, the end of the book, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, again, it then says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Again, so we see that God was very clear in what he was really after. It wasn't the physical rite or procedure itself that was so critical to God as much as what God really desired was a circumcised heart, a heart that was changed, a heart that had experienced something inwardly. And God wanted to cause the removal of anything, the removal of anything that would hinder their ability to have an experience with God inside. And God wanted that removed so that their heart would be tender to God and that they would be led of God and, and be submitted to him in their lives. So important to recognize, therefore, the keeping of that religious rite for the Jewish people or for that matter, the keeping of any religious observance out of tradition was not enough. In fact, it was even meaningless if you did not understand the deeper inward meaning that God was looking for. 
It would just be an outward observance. If you weren't understanding and you weren't experiencing inwardly what God intended and you were just relying on the observance of that outward religious procedure, you were missing the whole point. Because God wanted a circumcised heart. It was of no value if nothing happened inwardly in your heart. In fact, listen to how Paul, writing to the Jewish people in Romans chapter 2, emphasizes that. Listen to Paul's words. He says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, which would have been a Gentile, a non-Jew, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, who are a transgressor of the law? And listen to his words here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and of the spirit. Again, I think you could take Paul's words out there, Jew, and you could very easily insert for us today in there the word Christian. He was not a Christian who was one outwardly, but inwardly. Because see, we can go through all the dynamics of read our Bible and stand in a church service and sing the songs and pay attention during a Bible study. And we can go through all kinds of religious outward observances. There are multitudes and multitudes of people to this day. They, they're raised in a church structure. They go to certain classes. They you know, do the different requirements and they do this and they pass that and they follow through this and I, 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 I passed my holy this and I did my that. And I did, I'm, so I'm okay. I took all the classes. And God says, yeah, but you missed the point. Which was you took all the classes but nothing ever happened in your heart. And we're relying on religious observance. Listen, let me just be very frank. If we could do what was necessary to make our heart right with God through religious observances alone, then why would God send his only begotten son into this world and let him be spit on and mocked and beaten and his beard ripped out of his face and whipped and abused and bleed out his life on a cross if we could just do a few things to make ourselves right with God? The fact that Jesus came, Christ didn't die in vain. He didn't suffer in vain. There was something that needed to be done that we couldn't do through our own religious observances. And this is so critical because we need to be very careful that we never put our emphasis and reliance upon religious observances alone. That was the mistake that the Jewish people were making even with circumcision. And what Paul was trying to say here using spiritual metaphors, using an analogy of circumcision in verse 11 showing that God does not desire religious observance but inward reality. He says it's not a circumcision done with hands, a physical performance, but something that is done by Christ himself. When we came to Jesus, we experienced an inward circumcision spiritually, Paul's saying. God did something with the fleshly tablet of our heart. It wasn't physical. It was a powerful spiritual circumcision. He says in verse 11, it was the circumcision of Christ. It was something Christ performed inside of us. One translation renders this verse here. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised not by a physical procedure. It was a spiritual procedure, the cutting away of your sinful nature. See, this is the good news. Paul changed, or, or Paul's trying to say Jesus changed and transformed our heart condition. He cut away 
that old dominating power of our sinful nature that once ruled over us before we were in Christ that we had no ability to be set free from. Philippians 3 says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Describing that circumcision, that's why he says in verse 11 there, it was the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, now that's a reference to our sin nature our inherent sin nature that we receive from Adam, what he's trying to say is that the day that you embrace Jesus Christ, the, the power of your sin nature, he says the power of it to control you and to dominate and to rule you where you don't have the freedom to live differently, he says that was broken, that power was in a sense broken from its ability to rule over us as it once did in my life before I came to Christ. See, before I was following Jesus, I had no option. I had to sin. And I did a very good job at it. My sin nature ruled over me. And it dominated me. And I was under its dominion to fulfill its desires and its selfish lusts and, and everything about that. that it, it controlled and ruled me. But the Bible's saying to the Christian, you're no longer a prisoner anymore. That power was broken in your life through what Christ did and you've been completely set free from sin's power. Listen, not its presence in your life, but its power to control you. Am I still tempted? Boy, you better believe it. Temptation's still there. The wrestling's still there. But the biblical reality is that power has been broken over my life. This is what Paul talks about in the book of Romans where he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its lust." And I love what he declares later in the chapter where he says, sin does no longer have dominion over you. It doesn't have to have dominion over the life of a Christian. The Bible says that through Christ, those sins, temptation, and the sin nature are still with us until the day we go to heaven. The Bible says to the Christian, you've been set free. You've been set free. So you can choose to live in sin. I can choose to, to function in sin, but I'm living at a substandard level of what Christ has done for me. Sin doesn't have to rule me anymore. There's victory in Christ. There's deliverance in Christ and the ability to live differently. Paul says this in Romans 6, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed that form of doctrine which you were delivered and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Do you hear that? You were slaves of sin. Why did we used to live in some of the habits and life-dominating conditions that we did at one time? Because we were slaves of sin. But when a person comes to Jesus Christ, there's deliverance. There's liberty. There is no life-dominating habit that has to control your life if you're a Christian. You don't have to be under the influence of some substance abuse. You don't have to be in bondage to lust. You don't have to be in bondage to bitterness or whatever it may be that you don't have to because the Bible says you've been set free. You've been delivered. Through what Christ did, there's ability to live in victory and freedom over those things. So he says here, you've been completely set free from the power of sin to rule over you. It doesn't have to rule you. You can live in victory over whatever it may be trying to control you in your life. Secondly, we see as well going on that we have been completely united with Jesus forever, which, as I said, makes us completely ready for heaven. Look what Paul says as he goes on in verse 12 regarding Jesus, continuing to speak about our completeness in Christ. He says, you again were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he is made alive together with him again Paul's using metaphorical language here these verses are describing how the Bible's teaching is that our lives have been completely joined together with the life and the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ and this is what Paul's trying to explain in these verses here how we as a believer have completely received all that Jesus accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That as a result, in the same way, when I married my wife and she became one with me, she inherited everything I possess. Now, that's not a very exciting thing, but, but she did. It's all hers now. It's a shared experience. My life, her life, everything, all of my resources. It's a shared experience. And in the same way, like a spiritual marriage, the Bible says here spiritually, look at it in verse 12. He says, we were buried with him and we were raised back from the dead with him. To illustrate it, he's using this picture, again, another metaphor. He uses now the analogy of baptism. And he says, in baptism, you were buried and raised with Christ. Now, as a Christian, once we make a commitment to Jesus Christ, the Bible, as well as Jesus himself in his own words, commands us that we're to observe water baptism. It's one of the two ordinances left for the New Testament church to regularly celebrate communion and for the individual Christian to obey the Lord in water baptism. And water baptism for the Christian portrays and pictures really a spiritual baptism that has happened in our lives. So as we obey the Lord in water baptism, it's a means of identification for a person. It's a way of identifying outwardly and publicly what has happened inside of our heart spiritually. And it's a way for us to stand before people in public as we're water baptized and to represent outwardly, unashamedly, that something has happened inside of our life because people can't see underneath your sternum bone and what's happened in your heart and your soul deep within. But it's a way for us to outwardly represent that, to testify to the world that we are now identifying that we are one with Jesus and we desire to share in all of his experiences. So the whole purpose of water baptism is to demonstrate that outward reality of our conversion. And if you think of it, it makes complete sense. When we obey the Lord in water baptism, when we have a water baptism of the church, we, we go down to the ocean or some body of water, and, and as a person comes out to be baptized, uh, their whole body we put down under the water, and they disappear temporarily. And it's a picture of a burial. As it's a watery grave, as their body disappears under the water, it's a picture of, of death and burial. And then as we raise them back up out of the water again, it's picturing like a resurrection back to life. They, they raise back up and reappear, having been fully immersed in the water. So it's a, a, a symbolic representation of how even Jesus died. He was buried, and then he raised back to life again. And so we're identifying with the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying that we have received all that Jesus has done for us by faith and that our lives are now one with him as his follower and something has happened inside of us. We've died to that old way of life 
and we've chosen to raise to a new way of life. In a sense, when we go under the water, the burial, it, it's a picture saying, look, that old life, that old person that I once was, that life's dead now. And I don't want to live like that anymore. And, and I want that life to be dead and gone. And I'm dead to that old person. I lived like that long enough. And when we come back up out of the water, we're saying, I'm a new person in Christ now. I've, I've raised with Jesus. He's changed my heart and life. And I'm a brand new person filled with the Spirit of God, wanting to live for Jesus and to follow Him. So water baptism, as I said, really is a picture displaying a spiritual baptism, if you would. Something, again, that's happened inwardly inside of us. As a person goes down into the water, they come back up. They're fully saturated with the water, right? They're fully immersed. We submerge them completely into the water. And in the same way, what happens when you come to Jesus and you embrace him as Lord and Savior, your life is fully immersed. It's submerged into the life of Christ. You become completely one with Jesus spiritually, the Bible says, as your life is joined together with him. And this is what I mean by the fact that we are completely unified with Christ. This is what Paul is trying to say in these verses here, that our lives have become completely unified with him. He says, you were buried with him in which you were also raised with him. And notice he tells us here how this happened. Look at it in verse 12. He says this happened through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It was through our faith in the person of Jesus and the work that he accomplished, his sinless life, his death on the cross for his sins, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day through faith in that working of God who raised Jesus from the dead, believing God is able to do the same for me. That God is able to put an end to my old life and God is able to make me a new creation in Christ. God performed a supernatural work inside of us, unifying us with Jesus. So we now share in every aspect of his life. In the book of Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Do you not know as many who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and death, just as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we should walk in newness of life. See, this is the reality of coming to Christ. You become one with him and you have a brand new life. A brand new life. Listen, maybe you've done really well with your life, but I'll tell you something. When I heard that I could have a brand new life, that was very appealing to me. And it only took me about 17 years to come to that conclusion. Just shy of 18, when somebody said, you can have a brand new life. You can have a clean slate. You can start over. All the mess, all the madness, all the guilt. All, you, you can start over. That was really appealing to me. And this is what Jesus offers to us, a brand new life to live in him. And Paul declares in verse 13 here how we received this spiritual life that we once did not have and it came by Jesus giving it to us. Look what he says. Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us alive together with him. So again, the Bible teaches us all the way back from the book of Genesis that when Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, remember God said to Adam, of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely what? Die. 
Adam disobeyed God. And when he disobeyed God, he didn't fall over dead on the spot. Wait a minute. Well, what happened? What did happen is right away, now Adam, who had been walking together with God in perfect fellowship and oneness, now, now Adam's hiding from God. And God's looking, Adam, where are you? What and what happened is Adam didn't die physically in that moment. Physical death entered into the human race. We know that because last I checked, 10 out of every 10 people still die. So physical death did enter the human race. But worse, Adam died spiritually. He lost the spiritual fellowship he was originally created with to have with God. And guess what? Every person in this room all can trace our roots back to one human being, to Adam. We're all born of Adam's original line, the human race. And as a result of that, Adam could only pass on to us what he had, which was physical life that ends in death, but he had no spiritual capacity to transition or to pass on to us. So every human being that is born on this earth, though we have physical life, the spiritual part of us, which is there by design, the eternal part of you, the Bible says the spiritual part of us is dead. Important to understand, the Bible declares we do not start out our lives with the capacity of spiritual life to have relationship with God. That part of us, he says here, it's dead. We're dead in trespasses and sins. When we start out life, we have physical existence, but we don't have spiritual life within us. The inner part of us, our spirit, where we relate to God, the Bible says it's dead. It's as if the switch is turned off. It's disconnected. That's how we start out human life. So it's necessary at some point in our life that our spirit within be turned on spiritually. And that has to happen by God doing something inside of us spiritually. And let me say this, please hear me this morning. In the same way that no person can give life to themselves. Nobody can, can give life to themselves or cause their own birth. Someone else has to perform that for you. In the same way, nobody can give life to themselves spiritually. You can't just turn over a new leaf or do something or find your inner spark. Try that for a while. There is no inner spark. You can't create spiritual life within yourself by trying to get spiritual. Something has to happen from someone else outside of you as God needs to birth or begin spiritual life within you. He needs to grant spiritual life. He says there in our text, look, the Bible doesn't lie. It says you being dead. He has, past tense at your conversion, made you alive together with Jesus. When our dead human spirit was made one with Jesus when we came to him, we were then made alive spiritually. We received spiritual life from Christ and that eternal quality that Jesus possesses of life because he's the eternal God, it was given to us. That's when spiritual life began for us. When we received Jesus, who is God, he granted us spiritual life and he also granted us eternal life. And so therefore, the glorious news is we're completely one with him and we're now completely ready for heaven because we've received the spiritual and eternal life of Christ. It says in Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Bible says we're joint heirs now with Christ. 
and we will inherit, therefore, the glory of heaven. See, from God's perspective, listen, this is a fact this morning for you as a Christian. From God's perspective, he sees you spiritually already seated in heavenly places with Christ. That's how confident he is. As the result of your faith, judicially, positionally, he sees you seated already together in heavenly places. And you're wondering, am I going to make it to heaven? Yes. If you're not following Jesus, no. But you can change that this morning. But God sees you already so one with Christ, completely ready for heaven, completely one with him. Going on in verse 13 and 14, Paul mentions as well to us here another thing about our completeness in Christ and that we're completely forgiven of all our sin. Completely forgiven of all of our sin. Look how he goes on, verse 13. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, as a result of what Jesus has done for us, look at that marvelous statement there at the end of verse 13, spoken of assurance, and notice, spoken in the past tense of something that's already been completed. He says there in verse 13, in Christ, God has, look at it, already forgiven, past action, already forgiven you of all trespasses and sins. Please, this morning, let your soul hear that truth and believe and accept it. Despite what your feelings say to you at times, despite what your thoughts may be, he has already forgiven you of all your trespasses. Completely forgiven. Your thoughts may make you get condemned. Your feelings may make you worry because of something that you've done before. Listen, please hear me. Your sins in the past, the sins you are currently struggling with, and the sins that you're going to fail and make a mistake and commit next week and next month if the Lord should not return by then. Listen, God in Christ once for all, on the day that you accepted Jesus as the Savior for your sin, at that moment, judicially, God forgave us all our sin. It was a judicial declaration at that very moment. In fact, think of it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, remember he said these words, it is finished. The Greek there is paid in full. Jesus said that when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is finished, paid in full, all the sins of humanity. Listen, I hadn't even started sinning yet. But he already said, it is finished. In some ways, Jesus is more familiar with my sin than I am. Because he died for all of my sin 2,000 years ago before I even got going. He knew of every selfish thing and foolish act and mistake and failure, every wrong thing that I would do. All of it. It was all nailed upon the cross. Jesus paid it in full and took care of it all then. And our acceptance of what Jesus did offers us total forgiveness of all of our sin. Completely forgiven. Paul uses picturesque language in verse 14 by saying, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and contrary to us, Jesus took it away, having nailed it to the cross. Now, people dispute here exactly maybe what Paul was referring to, this handwriting of requirements that was against us. Some see it as a reference to the law, 
that this is what verse 14 is describing, the Mosaic law, and how Jesus came to deal with it for us because we are all lawbreakers. And the reality is, it is true that the law of God cannot make a person righteous by itself because the reality is, first of all, none of us can keep the law. Its righteous standard is too high and reveals to us we can't live up to its requirements. <laughs> I always find it amusing when people say, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. Well, do you know what they are? Well, but I live by them. Not that people can't even quote the Ten Commandments, let alone, do you know where that's even at in the Bible? Well, no, but I live by it. Well, the Bible says, thou shalt not lie, so you just blew it right there. None of us can keep the righteous. The, the law reveals to us that we're lawbreakers. It's like the speed limit. You wouldn't know you were breaking the law until you passed the speed limit sign. And then you look down at your speedometer and you're like, whoa, yeah, I'm a lawbreaker. The law reveals to us that we can't keep the standard, that we are all guilty, and it also indicts us that we deserve punishment, just punishment for being a lawbreaker. And in that sense, listen, it is true then the law is against us. It's handwriting and requirements. The law of God is against us. And Jesus thankfully came and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, satisfying its demands, and therefore he can take it out of the way. And he was able to nail it to the cross because he fulfilled the law of God on our behalf and he can allow us to live in faith in him. And so we're no longer under the law's demands or requirements or the punishment for our guilt. And in that sense, it's true, verse 14, Jesus took it away and nailed it to the cross. Personally, again, my own conviction, I believe the context of the words Paul are using here as well is probably that he's not referring to the law of God specifically. That's my conviction could be that he's probably referring to more what the people knew in that day culturally is what was called a certificate of debt and the language even he uses there in the Greek is a reference to a full list of requirements that one was responsible for and accountable to and when you hear refers to the handwriting of requirements against us typically a certificate of debt in that culture was one of two things it was either a reference in some ways to financial requirements for debts that you incurred that were written up and what you were obligated to then pay or it was also used at times if you committed crimes they'd write out a list of your offenses stole an apple from an apple cart ran from the police and, and they would list out your crimes and then at the bottom they would also write the punishment the just punishment that was due for the crimes you committed and as Paul writes these things here, that was a written document that was evidence of your obligation of, of punishment for the guilt of the crimes that you had committed. In fact, many times they would post the certificate of debt on the outside of the cell of a criminal. So if somebody was in a criminal uh, or in a prison cell, there would be outside of it posted a handwriting of requirement, the certificate of debt that said they did this, they did this, they did this, and therefore this is their judgment and this is their sentence. And so that handwriting of requirement basically proved you violated the law and it was a constant testimony to indict you of your guilt and to say they justly deserve punishment. When you would get out of prison after you served your time, they would write across your certificate of debt paid in full when they would give it to you. So it proved that you were guilty of those things, but now you were set free. I think it's this certificate of debt that Paul was referring to here that Jesus took out of the way nailing to the cross because here's the bottom of the line, ladies and gentlemen. Every one of us in this room has a certificate of debt because of our own sin. 
We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And this is telling us that every one of us has accrued a certificate of debt. Every failure, every mistake, every selfish, wrong, rotten thing, thought, word, and deed that we've all done at times in our lives, there's a record of all that. And there's a just punishment, spiritual and eternally, that we all deserve because of that. But Jesus' sinless life and his sacrificial death resolved the problem. It resolved the problem. Jesus took the punishment of my certificate of debt. He paid the penalty. It says here, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Having wiped out. That term, when you look at it there, is a term that speaks of erasing all that was written. And it's not talking about erasing like in the children's class, if you erase the whiteboard and sometimes you can still see the remnant that's still there unless you have to wipe it. This is talking about a complete erasure, completely removing the evidence that can no longer even be seen. Our file of guilt from sin is eradicated. It's scrubbed. The file's been scrubbed. There's, there's not even a document any longer that exists. The evidence of all of our wrongs has been purged and completely removed. And you alone in your soul this morning know what does that mean for your life? That if your trust is in Christ this morning, to know your certificate of debt, purged, removed, completely wiped clean from God's perspective. It doesn't matter what any human being says. From God's perspective, it's wiped clean. It's been taken away. Jesus took it and he nailed it to the cross when he died there. How did he nail it to the cross? Well, Jesus was nailed to the cross because he who knew no sin became sin for us. And he took it all, every certificate of debt, and allowed his body to be beaten and brutalized. And his death and the precious blood that was shed was necessary to pay the penalty of the sentence of my eternal guilt and damnation. And so Jesus embraced it all in his love for us so that he could hand to us paid in full. Look, the Bible says God has already forgiven you all your trespasses. All your trespasses. If your trust is in Christ this morning, despite what you ever think or feel, you must know biblically you are completely forgiven of all sin. All sin. Completely forgiven. That means you should never think that God's punishing you for some past sin in your life because that's not true. God punished Jesus sufficiently. God is not punishing you for some past sin in your life. In fact, this morning, God is not having anything against you. He is for you because Jesus took the punishment for you. What a glorious position and benefit given to those of us who put our trust in Christ to know that we can become completely forgiven of all trespasses. And what a terrorizing thing to think if your trust is not in Christ, to think that you're going to stand there before God with your certificate of debt and say, can I have an exception? Can I have an escape pass? To realize what God has done for us and offers to us to be completely forgiven of all sin. Well, finally, Paul says in verse 15 that we've also been completely delivered from Satan's power 
to control us, referring to Jesus' work on the cross in victory. He says, Jesus disarmed the principalities, verse 15, and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. One translation says, he disarmed the evil rulers and authorities, and he shamed them by his victory publicly over them on the cross. This speaks of Jesus as if you would military defeat of all the demonic forces and the thrones of evil that would have power to control us apart from Christ. And listen, biblically, we need to understand spiritual principalities and powers, Satan and his demonic forces are real, unseen but real. And they prefer to be unseen but real because then in very unnoticed ways, Satan can ruin lives and manipulate people and misguide their minds and their attitudes and keep them in a place where he can influence and control them so he ultimately can draw them right into the pit of hell. And these forces are real. Real things. Real spiritual forces. But the wonderful news is when Jesus came, he once for all broke the backbone of Satan's power, the Bible says, to control us. 1 John 3.8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Listen, Jesus initially defeated the devil by overcoming his temptation as a man when he lived as a man. And then Jesus, if you would completely strip the devil of his authority in his triumphant work on the cross, and Jesus' triumph was so victorious that like a military parade after a battle, it says here, Jesus made public spectacle, verse 15, uh, in shame, proving his defeat of the devil. Jesus judicially disarmed the forces of evil, stripped them from their power to control us any longer. That's why the Bible can say to you, if you're a Christian, he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. That Jesus has done such a wonderful thing to break the power that the enemy and evil forces would have over our lives. Now look, that does not mean the devil's not angry and that he hasn't retreated and regrouped. And he doesn't still seek to hassle those who are followers of Christ and destroy as many as possible with the evil resources at his disposal still. But we are told to be careful of our adversary, but to know as a Christian that our adversary, the devil, has no control over our lives. That no spiritual force outside of Jesus can control us in any way. For those in Christ, demonic forces have no power to control us anymore. Let me please say something this morning. In Christ, there's victory and triumph over every power of darkness. And that is one of the major distinctions between the person who's saved and the person who's not saved. The person who's saved, the power of Satan has been broken over life. The person who is not saved, whether they're conscious of it or not, there is an unseen spiritual current that is ruling and dominating and subtly and gradually ruining their life in deception to ultimately bring them to a pit of eternal damnation. And that power is controlling their life until they come to Christ. That cannot be broken. That cannot be broken. But thanks be to God for those of us who have come to Jesus, another thing we've received being complete in Him is we have been completely set free from the powers of Satan 
to control our lives in any way. And we as Christians must believe that truth and walk in it experientially. The devil may hassle you. The devil may try and misguide you. The devil may try and and claim territory in your life. But listen, as a Christian, you must know that's a lie. He has no right to control any area of your life. You under the authority and the lordship and the stewardship of your Lord Jesus Christ. He is your king. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. And he has complete protection and control over your life. Today, let me ask you, do you want to be completely set free from sin's power to rule over your life? Do you want to be completely one with Jesus? Do you want to be completely ready for heaven? Do you want to be completely forgiven of all your sin and completely delivered from the power of Satan to control you? If you're a Christian, listen, you are. Believe that. You are. And this morning, if you are not yet in a relationship with Christ, I want you to know you can. Today, that can be yours by embracing what Christ is offering. Shall we stand together?